0: This morning, I'll be reading from Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. Then Jesus said to his disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. So he summoned him and said to him, what is it that I hear about you? Give me an accounting of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. Then the manager said to himself, what will I do now that my master is taking the position away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that, when I am dismissed as manager, people may welcome me into their homes. So, Summoning his master's debtors one at a time, he asked the first, how much do you owe my master? He answered, a hundred jugs of olive oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make, a fit, make it 50. Then he asked another, and how much do you owe? He replied, a hundred containers of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and make it 80. And his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of dishonest wealth so that when it, when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. Whoever is faithful in a little is faithful also in much. And whoever is dishonest in very little is dishonest also in much. If then you have not been faithful with the dishonest wealth, who will entrust you to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to another, who will give you what is your own? No slave can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. At this, at this time, we invite you to observe a brief moment of silence and reflection.
1: Good morning, Highland. It is good to be back. Um, If you're new here in the last month, my name is Shane Hughes. I'm one of the ministers here. And uh, the church generously every year offers um, a study break for me, uh, a time where I can kind of get out of the rhythm of the marathon and kind of move to a jog for a little bit, catch my breath, read books that I've wanted to catch up on and think about and dream about the things that Seems like there's never enough time to week to week. And I'm, I'm grateful for this church, and I'm grateful for that generous uh, gift uh, for my own work. I'm also grateful for the fact that we have like the best backup bench that a church could ever dream of in terms of preachers. Uh, Leah, Amy, David, Tara, and Jerry all did an incredible job. Um, and I'm grateful for each of the gifts. Uh, that you have and that you've offered uh, for the sake of this church. And I have some stories that I want to tell you about what's happened in the last month. Uh, for for me, um, I'll just give you one for right now because it's it 's funny, I think um, I went to ministry to hear Ian preach in Ministry Church of christ it's here in Abilene, and man it's such a great church, and Ian is a phenomenal preacher, but something happened at the beginning of the church, and it kind of shook me i 'm not going to lie um, it, it really i I slipped in like three minutes late um, And I sat in the back because that's where I wanted to be for that particular day. And an elder got up at the beginning of the service and looked us all dead in the eye and said, if you are sitting behind sister so-and-so, you're going to move up. Now this has happened in my life like a thousand times where someone has begged and pleaded for the congregation to move forward. And I was shocked that Sunday morning when everyone but me behind that woman stood up and began to move. And I was forced, I couldn't be the only one in the back last 12 rows of the church to be sitting there by themselves, and so I stood up, ended up on the third row of the church, not where I wanted to be. The sermon was especially powerful from that close. It made me grateful for this church where you would just stare at me, probably, when I make that request. You wouldn't even break eye contact, pretend to be surfing on your phone. You would just look at me and say, nah. (laughs) If you're the kind of person that just looks at the preacher when they ask him to move, and you say, nah, man, this is the church for you. (laughs) This is the place for you. This is where you are going to thrive. Uh, Because there's a spirit about this church. And I want you to take it two ways. See, this isn't even sermon yet. I'm just, I'm just riffing now. Um, one, this is a place where there is so much talent and gifting. There are so many brilliant minds and faithful servants. There are people that can teach us about discipleship and can teach us about the New Testament and they can teach us what it means to be a good parent and what it means to be a good spouse and what it means to be a good single person. There are so many different amazing, talented people in this church. But also, this is a church where if you're sitting on the back row because church doesn't feel very safe to you, or you just kind of are in a season of your life where you want to slip in and slip out again because that's as much as your heart can bear in terms of engagement with others, it's okay. You can stay there on the the back for a little while eventually someone's going to call you into something deeper and it's it's going to be the spirit that does that it's going to ask you to heal and move to more so if this is a church where you just want to say nah for right now it's okay that's this is a church for you we're glad you're here let's uh pray and then we're going to jump into the sermon uh heavenly father we're grateful we're grateful to be gathered together. I, my heart is full today in appreciation for what you have done in your kingdom around the world, but most especially here in this place. And so, Father, I want us to, to think about your word carefully, and I want it to penetrate our hearts. I want it to change our minds. I want it to, to rearrange and reorder our passions. I want it to, to move our behavior in a way that we've never experienced before. So, Father, to that end, I pray that you pour through me the gift of preaching that I might speak your truth and love to these, your people. And it's together that the church says, amen. So we've been in these parables all summer. We've just been listening to the stories that Jesus tells when he wants to tell you something so important that you can't hear it directly. It is too powerful for your ears to hear it on the front. end, And so Jesus chooses to wrap it in a story instead. And really where we've been on our pathway for most of the summer has been in worship. We've been seeking to understand who God is. If we can know the character of God, then it will reveal the mystery and the wonder of of what it means to be a human being, what it means to be alive, what it means to be part of God's kingdom. But about halfway through the summer, it kind of switched, because Jesus' stories kind of switched. We're no longer just asking the question of, of who God is, but we're also asking the question, what does kingdom look like? And the tacit question that I want you to experience today is, how do I become a part of that? What is the Spirit doing to invite me into that? And so today, if you have your Bible, I want you to open up to Luke chapter 16, and we're going to take it backwards. We're going to start at the thesis, and we're going to work our way out of it. So we're going to begin at the end of where Terry read today. And Jesus is clear. <coughs> that wasn't emphasis, that was coughing. Jesus is clear. Money is a good servant, but a terrible master. And if you get that twisted, your life is going to be miserable. Money is a good servant, but a terrible, a very poor master. And Luke is clear. Jesus is not only clear, but Luke is clear. He thinks that the gospel is going to be good news for everyone, but he is particularly aware of the people on the outside. And so in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus gets up to give his first sermon in his hometown at the synagogue, he, he proclaims that the gospel is good news for the sick and the disenfranchised, the widows and the poor, The gospel will set captives free. It will give sight to the blind. It will relief from the grinding oppression and announce the year of jubilee. And so the flip in this parable that would surprise the listeners is that the rich person who understands that wealth is a servant, not a master, might be closer to the kingdom than the person in poverty who believes that wealth is a master. So here is the crux of the story, and if you can catch this in one sentence, you can tune out till I'm done, it's fine, because you're going to get it. Churches and Christians should be careful with the resources we have, and we should invest them in the kingdom. So let's talk about what's happening in the story. There's this dude, he's a middle manager, and he's about to be fired for squandering the, the master, the Lord's wealth. And so he goes to the people that um, owe his boss money. And the amounts that you see in this might give you the impression that this man <coughs> is trying to do some sort of lateral move. Like he's trying to get... Rid of <coughs> That's not good. <coughs> I'm going to take down the intensity of this sermon by like three notches for the sake of my own voice. But please hear the passion in my words, because I really wanted to land this today. He goes to the people that owes his boss money, and it's not the people that you would think. It probably looks like he's trying to make some sort of lateral move, like he's trying to move from manager at home Depot to manager at Lowe's, but that's probably not the reality, because everyone that's listening to this text in the first century knows exactly who the rich man was. He was a patron. And he had extended a relationship that was formal in the first century culture with everyone that owed him things. And it was sort of a covenant with expectations. The, the clients that were below him were the other half of that covenant. And, and there, was, there were things that both sides were, were expected to do. Unfortunately, the patron relationship really benefited the rich. You could think of it as like a, a coal mining town or share, sharecroppers in the 19th century. It's the rich one who sets the wages and sets the rent and sets the price of everything that's sold at the company store. And it's a, se- it's a system that's, that's created to put people in a perpetual cycle of debt. And this manager is in the middle. And he's, he's smart enough to manage the books and maybe he's educated enough to kind of excuse the moral conundrum that he's called into of his people that live in his village. And so he's, he's seen by the farmers as the representative of the rich one, and he's seen by the rich one as the representatives of everyone else. He's in the middle, and he can't win. And so he does what he can. He forgives the debt. And he, he forgives a lot of debt. This is not a small amount of debt. He forgives a lot of money. And maybe it's his commission, but, but that would make him more admirable if that were true. But I, I doubt that's the case. I don't think he's, he's forgiving his money. I think he's forgiving his master's money. And so the scene arrives when the Lord travels back into the village to formally fire this joker and collect the rents that have been taken up. And I want you to imagine with me that as he turns the corner to go into the middle of town, instead of it being like a normal day with just people milling about, everyone is there. All the farmers are there. All the tenants are lined up, and they're cheering. And that's never happened before. And it it feels good. And the rich one notices that his, his son is looking up at him admirably as the village cheers procession turns into this baffling receiving line as each farmer offers thanks and small gifts what exactly is going on well he finds out what the steward has done and now of course he has to make a choice he can tell the farmers that this is a terrible mistake and that actually they're back on the hook for what was forgiven or he can just go back outside and soak up the acclaim and the goodwill and the joy And I mean, of course, he's going to have to take the steward back, whether he wants to or not. The steward, and then when, when the steward retires, the farmers are going to gladly take him in, even if the landowner does not. The steward has turned the landowner into the hero. And by the time he finds out the truth, he can't take it back. The steward is clever and crafty and the rich landowner has to admit that he has been outsmarted this time. How you read this text depends on whether or not you think money is real. How you read this text depends on whether or not you believe money is real or not. And I've met both types of people that believe money is real or money isn't. You can kind of think of maybe philosophically Back to Socrates who pointed up in the picture because he thought the world of the forms was the most real thing in the universe. His student Aristotle is is pictured pointing down because he thought matter was the most important thing. One way I talk to my students about this when we're talking about this idea is to ask the question, did the Pythagorean theorem exist before Pythagoras discovered it? What's the most real? The idea or the things. Either money is real, (coughs) or it's just an idea. And how do you know which one you are? Well, think of it this way. If you received an unexpected inheritance, maybe you won the lottery, it doesn't matter. Sudden boon of money came in, life-changing amount. What would you do with it? What does it mean to you? Is it the opportunity for adventure or investment, or is it something that you have to save and not squander? Is money real or not? We as a culture are fascinated by wealth almost as much as any other culture. In fact, we're more fascinated with the stories of the wealthy than anywhere anywhere else that I've experienced, like the story of Mark Cuban. If you don't know who Mark Cuban is, he owns uh, the, the Mavericks. Dallas Mavericks. But his story was that he went to IU, Indiana University, which is not Stanford or Harvard or any other of those places, by the way. And he moved down to Texas and he wanted to watch IU basketball. But there was no way to watch it back then. And so he started a company using the internet to figure out if he could watch IU basketball down in Texas. He founded a company called Broadcast.com. He started with $11,000. And he sold it to Yahoo a few years later for $4.7 billion, which is a lot of money. And so he took some of that money and he bought the Mavericks. And he bought part of the Mavericks from one of the Perot heirs for $285 million, which is a lot of money. And it's now worth $3.3 billion. That's a lot of money. But here's the thing about Mark Cuban. He doesn't care. He's more interested if he can watch basketball than the money that it brings him. He's the only owner that flies in his personal jet to nearly every away game that he can. He is the only owner that doesn't sit up in the box seats but sits down on the floor and wears a jersey. He got there to that wealth not because not because he wants that much money but because he wants what it can do there have been people in this room who have been faithful with very much and there have been others in this room that are faithful with very little and we also know those who are dishonest with much and dishonest with willow, with very little there are those who have had debts forgiven and those who have refused to forgive debts. And there's someone in this room that's been fired from a job, and there's someone else who has been the boss who've had to do the firing. And you don't have to go too far to find someone that's been falsely accused, who has tried on wishy-washy evidence. So maybe you think this steward was just out there to save his own neck, or maybe he's doing the best he can with the resources he has, or maybe he's just playing in an economy and a culture that already plays dirty and has stacked the deck against him, and no one can fault him for doing what appears to be something immoral. So here's the ending of the story who think that money isn't real. The manager is better because rather than to accumulate wealth for himself, he invests it in enduring relationships. He chooses to take something that's not real and invest it in something that that absolutely is real. William Harkin says it like this. The unjust steward forgives. He forgives things he has no right to forgive. He forgives for all the wrong reasons. He forgives for personal gain and to compensate for past misbehavior. And this is the message that's strange in this parable. Go ahead, forgive it all, forgive it now, forgive for good and for selfish reasons or for no reason whatsoever, just forgive. Why forgive someone who's sinned against us or against our sense of what is right? You could forgive out of love or in Jesus' name or because we've all been forgiven or because we wanna be free from the burden of bitterness or because we think it will improve our chances of winning the lottery, it doesn't matter. There is no bad reason to forgive because it puts us in touch with God's grace. If this manager is a rascal or a scallywag, whatever you want to call him, who can forgive to save his job or to give himself a safety net if his firing proves unavoidable, then we who have experienced real grace have all the more reason to forgive. This is not a go-and-do-likewise parable. This is a how-much-more parable. If a dishonest manager can create a rest, a place of security after his work, how much more can you do the same with the resources that God has given you? So invest in the things that matter. And those of us that know that money isn't real, that it comes and it goes, that it might be a big number or a small number, it doesn't matter. Use that resource to invest in what matters. If you feel like money is a real thing, then I want you to hear this ending to the story. (coughs) Luke uses the same word twice in a row. So much so that it's a stunning connection between the two stories that are connected by this word. It's, it's, it's a word that ties two ideas together. And until this week, I'd never thought of these two stories that were together. But now that I see it, I can't avoid it. The word is squandering. The master squanders his master's wealth in the same way the prodigal son, who, by the way, is the story right before this one, squanders his father's inheritance. It's the exact same verb. And I think that Luke puts these two stories side by side. And more often than not, we separate them for Luke. We just do the work for him. Because the stories before the prodigal are about lost things. And this is the lost son. And the stories that are after the story of the dishonest manager are about money. And so we think that maybe there's a division there that Luke's trying to set up. But I think what Luke wants to do is create this tiny little bridge that we can cross over. And we can see these two different worlds. Because money is, is real. Money can do real things, and has real power. And in fact, some of us believe that the number that's in our bank account says a lot about who we are. And that's a lie. It's a lie from the evil one. Your bank account cannot tell you your own value or your own worth. Somebody help me. Your bank account cannot tell you your own value or your own worth. Minda had that down. You guys need work. Your bank account cannot tell you what your value is. Your bank account cannot tell you how important you are to the kingdom. The kingdom cannot, your bank account cannot tell you that the kind of car that you can or cannot purchase makes a difference in your life. Jerry said it last week, but I experienced it myself when we were in California. We went on a trip to go to a camp that we just loved to be at. And Natalie and I would play this game. We would sit at the intersection. We were going anywhere. And we would count the number of Teslas we could see. And that number was impossibly high in Silicon Valley. There is so much wealth in that city It got to the point where we stopped playing, like how many can we see? How many are on the front row of the intersection? And if the number was above three, then we won. I don't know what we won, we just won. And there is this belief there that is tied inseparably to the power of money that if your number is higher than somebody else's, that you have somehow are smarter or more successful or been more lucky or been more provident or God is somehow for you. Your bank account cannot tell you anything about your value that God has not already said. Amen? Amen. And somehow the prodigal knows that. The story of the prodigal embraces that. And I don't know if the prodigal is about true repentance or not. I don't know if he's going there because he wants to become a son again, or if he really just thinks a servant eats better than what I'm eating right now, so maybe if I go back, things will be better. And he's ready to tell his little pitch to to be the servant in his father's house when the father runs and what the son experiences is restoration. And you could not ask for a better ending to that story if you are the prodigal. You could not ask for a better ending to that story if you found yourself sitting at the back of the church because there is wounding that has happened in your life. Because all of us on some level have experienced what it means to be not loved and unchosen and unwanted and unvalued. And the story is that in God's kingdom, you are loved. And so maybe if money's real for you, there's just two things. You get to choose which kingdom you want to be a part of. You can be in the father's house. Or you can be in this, this, this uh, manager's world. The manager that has to do the best he can with what he has. And the cutthroat kill or be killed economy. He can't trust baby food because it has sawdust in it. It's an easy way for a corporation to raise quarterly profits. And the only reason that you're still in the position you have is because of the dirt you have on your boss, chasing the hope that a slightly higher number in that bank account will bring you happiness when you know that that will not happen. Money is a powerful servant, but it makes a lousy master. There is no done with money. There's always going to be some other appetite waiting to be filled that you have when you earn more money. I wish there was some end to the game of capitalism, some ribbon we could give to the winners and send them to the stands to cheer on the rest. But if you want to live in the kingdom of this dishonest manager, you never are able to get off the treadmill. It just moves faster and faster and faster, and then you die. It's like my friend who was an elder at at Campbell, the, the church I used to work at. I was reminded of this story when I came back. He made a decision when he was in, um, about 36 years old. He worked for a hard, work, hard drive company. And about the time that um, the internet really exploded, hard drives became a very valuable resource. And so <coughs> the companies that were positioned to make hardware, hard drives cheap and fast um, were in a great place. And he was high in a company that was doing that very thing. And so his annual income and his bonuses and the value of his his stock began to rise very rapidly, and he realized this moment occurred to him when he was looking at an Excel sheet that he had become a millionaire. The value of his house, the value of his finances, the value of his future earnings. In fact, he was going to become a a millionaire with the two at the end pretty soon. And he spent a lot of time figuring out, what am I going to do? And that led him to ask the important question, what has God called me to do? And I want to tell you what this elder did, because it's astounding. He decided that he would set in his heart and in his finances a number every year. That number would increase with inflation. He indexed it because he creates hard drives. Of course he's a nerd. He indexed it. And he just decided, that's how much money my my family is going to live on. And it didn't really matter how much he made. It didn't matter how much his stock was worth. He was going to live on X. And he was going to give the rest away. (coughs) And I think that moment, and he did it for like 15 years. I think that moment is a reflection of the kingdom that's made in the prodigal's father, in that kind of house. I think that's a reflection of what it means to be a part of a a church, a community that's focused on God. So what kind of community do you want to be a part of? Or maybe the next question is, which community do you want to grow? and eventually take over ideologically the world. Most of us are pretty good at making big promises, but end up fail on the little things that make the big promises possible, whether this is a, a job or your marriage or anything. In your job, you make big promises, but they have to be followed up with emails and, and, and meetings and, and growth goals it's easy to take vows and, and practice the day to day acts of kindness, uh, but it's hard to practice the acts of day to day kindness and cooperation and listening and understanding and fidelity required to make the partnership work. That is, to turn a wedding into a marriage. It's so much more than wealth, it's your passions and your goals. What Jesus is after is not your money. That's small change. What Jesus is after is your heart. And so today, we have a choice. Whose house do you want to live in? Do you want to live in the house of the prodigal's father? Or do you want to live in the economic opportunity of a shrewd manager? I think you have to choose. Maybe the deeper question is, how can you begin to build the house that you want to live in now? Heavenly Father, for the gift of your word, we give you thanks for all the things that you have done in our lives. Father, I pray for this church, that it finds our mission and our purpose a delight to our eyes and our hearts that we would follow you, Jesus, that we will look unswervingly at the cross. It is through Christ we pray, amen. Our prayer team is going to be available for you at the end of the service. If you would like someone to pray with or talk with, uh, they're going to be here now. If you can't have a conversation right now, call one of our elders, one of our shepherds. Um, They would love to get a cup of coffee with you on a Tuesday afternoon. Would you please stand for our benediction? May you find rest in the true master, the master that gives peace and joy and comfort. May you be filled with God's presence and go in peace.